when I listened to you know, folks like Lamar Wilson and, and you know some black Bitcoiners talking about the liberation that it provides because it removes the middleman. It takes traditional banks out of the, you know, and so now we don't have to jump through those hoops like I was telling you about earlier in order to qualify for Bitcoin. I can just go buy as many as I like, stack it up, invest it where I want to. And then I started looking worldwide and seeing what was happening in El Salvador and, and how um, folks are able to send money, like the Lightning Network, and not have to worry about the fees, remittance fees, and all of that. I'm like, yes, that sounds like freedom. That's what I'm talking about, you know, that you're able to just kind of take control of your own financial destiny and not have to worry about, you know, the middleman on the back end. And so that was what it attracted me to the, to the potential of Bitcoin. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Reverend Wendy Hamilton, who is running for Congress for the District of Columbia. What would compel someone to run for a position that has no voting rights in Congress? What you will learn is that Reverend Wendy has a selfless desire to help people. Running for Congress is the natural progression of a career in service to others. And I know you will recognize this after my conversation with her. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy my interview with Reverend Wendy Hamilton. Reverend Wendy Hamilton, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. Wonderful. Well, let's get right into it. You are a teacher, a chaplain at Georgetown, a church minister. You have served as the spiritual and cultural outreach director for Andrew Yang. And now you're running for Congress. Yes. I suspect the common thread through all those positions is the strong desire to help people. Exactly right. Where did that desire come from and how do you maintain it during these hard times? I really feel like it's always been who I am, even from childhood, but I would have to give much of the credit to my mother, God rest her soul. And she was just a phenomenal woman. She was my role model. She was my example. And she was forever helping people. She was forever opening the doors of our home, inviting other people in. She was always open. She was always uh, inclusive, if you will. And so just watching her example sort of helped me develop into that type of individual and that type of human being, just striving to be like her. Did she give you advice as to how to handle the hard times when you feel like you don't have hope and yet you were relied upon to give it? Well, she always reminded me that you can't give from an empty cup. So beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> so whatever I was giving, <laughs> whatever I was endeavoring to do, she always reminded me to make sure that I replenished myself. And so while it, it can be um, fulfilling in one way to give to people and to give of yourself, you don't do it at the expense of yourself. So what I what I learned and took from that was always find places and have people around me who are pouring into me as I'm pouring out to other people. And that's what I continue to do even in these difficult times. And the other piece of, of advice I think that she gave me to navigate, not even just tough times, but tough people. I'll never forget being in the fourth grade and I, I was going to Catholic school growing up. I was one of the uh, only African-American children in the entire elementary school. My cousin was the other young African-American lady. This is the first time I ever encountered racism, if you will. The 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 nun who was my teacher in fourth grade um, called me the N-word and um it was devastating. That's the first time I had, you know, and it was kind of a situation where I raised my hand to answer questions. I was always talkative, so I was raising my hand to answer questions, and she she would never call on me. So I finally said to her one day, you know, I went up to the desk and I said, you know, sister, I won't call her name, but <laughs> sister, you know, I always have my hand up. You know, why don't you call on me? You know, she says, I don't call on you because niggers couldn't possibly know the answers to the questions that I'm asking. What do you do with that word? What do you do with that statement at nine years old, at 10 years old? 
Do you, and I, I didn't, I was in shock. That's the first time I'd encountered the word. That was the first time I knew about it, but that's the first time it was directed personally to me. I just, I, I didn't want to cry in front of her. So I went back to my seat and I sat down, but it was near the end of the school day. At the end of the school day, I met my mother cause she came to pick me up and she saw something was wrong on my face. And I told her what happened. I couldn't even get through the whole story before I saw the back end of her coat getting out of the car and going into the to the school to talk with the principal and have a meeting and all that. All of that was, you know, was handled and taken care of. I was removed and put in a different classroom. But she looked me in the eye and she said, don't you let that define who you are or who you are going to be, because that is an ignorant person. And you're always going to run into people like that. But you have the choice on how to respond to those types of people. That's ignorance. And it has nothing to do with you. So that is something I've always carried with me. That was incredibly powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I want you to tell us a little bit about your experience uh, with this as a spiritual and cultural outreach director for Andrew Yang. I'm sure you've encountered very similar situations during your time uh, in that position, as you just described. You know, the the spiritual aspect of why I joined Andrew's campaign really, too, was around messaging and his platform of humanity first. You know, I I've always been someone, even if I was interested in the politician, it was based on what they stood for, not what they looked like, <laughs> you know, not where they were from, but I needed to be able to resonate with something that they were fighting for. So when I discovered Andrew Yang, it was very early. I was, they call me uh, OG Yang gang, if you will, because I, <laughs> I was on board uh, in 2018. I read an article about Andrew Yang. He had just uh, jumped into the presidential uh, contest he was early because he had to get himself out there and get known. But there was an article in the New York Times entitled The Robots Are Coming. And it was talking about the threat of automation and how so many jobs were being automated away. And we weren't looking out for the people who had lost those jobs. And Trump came along, sort of spoke to those emotions. And that's part of what got him in as well. And so he started talking about universal basic income and how we needed to give people a lifeline. And that if people had money coming in to put in their hands, perhaps they felt would feel less hopeless and felt like they had more options. And all I could think about was my grandparents in Ohio when I was growing up and how my grandmother worked in the shoe factory and my grandfather worked in the atomic plant. And those were great middle class you know, jobs back in the late 70s and early 80s. But when those jobs got automated away, when those jobs got shipped overseas, Nothing comparable came in to replace them. And my entire town like collapsed in on itself economically. And there was nothing for them. If you didn't have the money to move away, you know, if you didn't have the means to be able to relocate to, to find work elsewhere, what did you do? So a lot of people, you know, turn to unfortunately, you know, opioid and and alcohol and different things, depression and 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 so and and my town still hasn't recovered. I, I go back home every now and again, you know, maybe every other year to check in on folks, and it hasn't recovered. But when when I heard Andrew talking about universal basic income, I thought, now if my grandparents knew they had about a thousand dollars a month coming in during that time that they had the job loss, maybe they would have had a little more hope. Maybe they could have felt like, okay, maybe I can weather this storm. At least I know I've got something coming in. It can cover a few bills, maybe put some gas to my car to get me to some interviews, things like that. To me, that was like what I preach on Sundays, looking out for the least of these, taking care of the poor and the widow and making sure that all of humanity's needs are met. So it just made a spiritual connection for me the messaging around universal basic income. And then I come to find out Martin Luther King had championed a universal basic income. He, he talked about it. Matter of fact, the night before he was assassinated, he was doing a speech on guaranteed minimum income and getting money into every American's hands. So for me, the spiritual connection to the Andrew Yang campaign was in the messaging because it went right along with who I am as a person taking care of others, reaching out to humanity, putting our humanity first. And uh, it was just a natural fit. 
As a chaplain at Georgetown and in your other ministry work, you were present to a lot of people's pain, a lot of people's suffering. What common threads have you seen among us with those experiences and how have they shaped who you are? Well, I tell you something, they have those those types of experiences before the pandemic would have probably been categorized as, you know, the most major traumatic types of of situations we can find ourselves in. But fast forward to now, and I'm doing some of the same similar type of skill sets with people trying to manage their lives and the, the disruption that has come as a result of this pandemic. And it's similar to sitting with people in their trauma who have just been diagnosed with a terminal illness or have suddenly lost a, a loved one, God forbid, a child. I, I never thought, you know, it, it, it's amazing to me the capacity that God has for us if we open up to it. That's just kind of from a spiritual perspective. If you had told me several years ago that I might be accompanying a parent to the operating room so that their child could donate their organs, I would have said, no, I don't know if I could, if I could do that. And yet, fast forward to my chaplain experience, because not only was I at Georgetown as a chaplain serving with the first year residents, and that's its own trauma when you're away from home. So we had a lot of students who were challenged mentally with, uh, you know, having to be away for the first time and, you know, maybe thinking about taking their own lives. And so I had some of that, but I also worked as a hospital chaplain. So that's where the uh, accompanying a parent to the operating room, I was a trauma chaplain in the emergency room and a uh, labor and delivery chaplain uh, on the floor. So I kind of got to see the cycle of life. I know Andrew Yang has spoken to these common threads in his experience in touring the country where he would experience these kind of fundamental emotions and needs common to us all that broke down the barriers that we put up to differentiate ourselves. Correct. As a chaplain in the hospital, you experience that. As a physician in the hospital, I see that. Mm -hmm. How do you think we can take that understanding through our own unique experiences, that suffering that we have seen, mm -hmm. those common needs that we have seen, and allow others foot in that door to better understand these common things that bring us together? I think just by modeling that ourselves, at the end of the day, we can talk about it, we can preach about it, or we can be about it. And what we have seen, <laughs> what you and I have you know, had the luxury, if you will, of seeing is how trauma, pain, sickness, it doesn't discriminate. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's subject to hit any one of us. And I think that's what, again, this pandemic has shown us. This didn't just hit the poor. This didn't just impact the rich. Everybody was susceptible. Everybody had to stay home for a year and a half. Everybody had to reevaluate their, their life priorities. You know, I saw people online literally trying to say, I don't know how to be because I'm always going, I'm always working, I'm always, you know, so people are thinking about their life priorities and trying to figure out like, well, what was I doing? What have I been doing? What, what has become important? Who have I become? And so because you and I have already sort of had a glimpse into these kinds of conversations and opportunities that families have when faced with trauma like that, I think we are in a much more valuable position to help lead others through that process. Yes, that's that's beautifully said, and I would agree. As we move toward a discussion of your platform, was there a defining moment for you uh, in your decision to run for Congress? Really, it was the death of John Lewis and how I just felt in that moment. Well, it was during the time, too, that uh, we didn't know if, if Trump was going to get reelected. Uh, there was just all this uncertainty. So I'm talking June 2020, you know, June, July 2020. And I'm sitting around like, I don't think personally our country would survive another four years of the Trump administration. I just don't think we'll be able to make it. I won't be able to make it. Let me just, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm doing the best I can, but I, I cannot continue to process the direction that we're going and how it, it, everything is upside down. I feel like we were in, on our way to the upside down, you know? And 
So as I sat there and I prayed and I, I, I was, I've always been interested in social justice. I've always volunteered on campaigns and things like that. But I've, I'm, I've also, also said, you know, I want to do something. What can I do to make me help me feel as if I'm doing my part to, to push back? On, on, on this direction that we're going. And so John Lewis died and C.T. Vivian died. So I'm seeing all these civil rights leaders transitioning and I'm thinking all of the work that they've done is being threatened and jeopardized right now. So what can I do to help save that? You know, they're trying to take us back to 1965. You know, like what, what can I do? And, and the most effective way I felt like given where I am now, you know, in my life, in my in my purpose, you know, in my life's work. Um, and then even geographically, it made sense for me to run for Congress. Um, some people said, well, that, you know, Wendy, why did, why not city council? Why not uh, mayor, uh, particularly here in D.C.? Because I'm in Washington, D.C. And the role that I want to run for, number one, it's a non-voting delegate role. We can certainly get into that. Number two, there's a 32-year incumbent in the seat. So, um, you know, people are like, you know, why are you doing that to yourself? <laughs> like, well, because number one, the decision is not about me. I go where I feel called and led to go, number one. And number two, I just, I feel like you have to also pursue things that capitalize your strengths and recognize where your strengths aren't necessarily. So when you look at the mayoral role, when you look at the city council, those are more administrative executive type stuff, you know, managing budgets, managing large organizations, making sure the the fire chief and the police chief aren't strangling each other at the budget meeting, you know, things like that's not my thing. But when you look at Capitol Hill, when you look at Congress, when you look at representation, when you look at um, using your voice on behalf of those who feel voiceless, when you talk about using your voice to influence legislation, to write legislation, to be able to bring the needs and to amplify the, the, the concerns of the people to those in power, to speak truth to power, that, that felt like a more natural fit for me. And so that's what motivated me to move to Congress for a run. One of the specific uh, parts of your platform that really stand out is the desire for D.C. statehood. Yes. What have historically been the roadblocks for D.C. statehood? Well, first, I think it's mostly been political, but also some educational, right? One of the things I'm learning in this conversation around statehood is that I had the benefit of, like I said, being born in a state. You live in a state. We know what it's like to have representation, have a governor, to have you know state representatives and, and federal representatives. We know, we kind of take it for granted. We know that if there's an issue, we can go get that taken care of. We, you know, we can write our legislators. And, and so we know what that's like. You come to DC and folks here have never had that experience. They've never had full representation. And so trying to talk to people about the benefits of it, you have a lot of explaining to do. Well, what is that? What's going to, what's, what's the importance? I have some people saying to me, Reverend Wendy, I, 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 I hear statehood's a good thing for us and it's something we should pursue. And I'm like, absolutely. They're, they're, you know, we are 700,000 taxpaying residents without representation. <laughs> you know, we deserve to have a voice. We don't need the federal government overseeing and telling us how to make decisions. We can stand up for ourselves. And they're like, yeah, yeah, Reverend Wendy, sis, boom, bah, rah, rah, rah. But how's statehood going to help me put groceries on my table? How's statehood going to help me put gas in my car to get me from point A to point B? Like, break it down for me so I can understand how statehood is going to make a tangible difference in my life. Now, that's where you have to sit down and talk to people and be able to explain that because you want everybody on board. And so from an education standpoint, that's been some of the barriers, just getting the, the, the city itself fully engaged. Because the majority are, but when I was going to statehood visibility events all the summer, you know, and we, we were able to get statehood through the House, the Senate, not so much, you know, so two of the most obvious barriers right now are Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kirsten Sinema, but that's, you know, but even before that, 
I was noticing at these statehood rallies that it was mostly activists. It was mostly nonprofits and agents, the people you would expect to be there, right? Which is fine because you, you want that. But I'm, I'm seeing the same people and we're going to different parts of the city. So I'm like, where are the people at? Where are the residents at? If you want, if, if we want to convince the government that we want something, like first and foremost, the government is not going to give it to us. They didn't give us, they're not going to sit back and say, well, you know what? We're not doing right by DC. <laughs> you know, let me, let's go ahead and just go. That's not how this they did. We have to fight for it. We have to, we have to take to the street. We got to stand there and we collectively have to demand it. And so my goal in running for this office is to motivate and inspire the people to go and make the case for statehood, because in my mind, that's the way that we're going. They won't be able to deny us, you know, when we're coming at them in numbers. Sure. Makes sense. Uh, Obviously, the legislative process is entirely uh, reactionary. And so if there's not a demand there, you're not going to get what you want. Exactly. So they'll let you get it through the House. And like I said, all all due respect to Delegate Norton, she did get it through the House twice. But we always knew that it was like when the Republicans controlled the Senate, um, you know, during the Trump administration, the first time we got it through the House, Mitch McConnell said it's dead on arrival. Don't even bother bringing the statehood bill to the Senate floor because their thing is they don't want two new two more Repub- uh, excuse me, Democratic senators. They know Washington, D.C., tens blue, trends blue, and that those two Senate seats that we would inherit would potentially be Democratic. But that's not the point, Mitch. <laughs> you know, the point is this is undemocratic. It, it's a human rights issue. We're, we're denying representation to taxpaying citizens. Just because the city happens to be heavily Democratic is not a, a good enough excuse for you to deny it. Because trust and believe, if those were two Republican seats, D.C. would be the district, well, the name will be the Douglas Commonwealth. We would have been that by the time you and I get off of this call. So for the political ends of it, it's a power thing. So we got it through the House once. Now we've gotten it through the House again this time. And, and the thought was, we got Democratic president, we got the House, we got the Senate, surely voting rights and and the whole Democratic agenda ought to be able to just float through. Nope. Because we've got people that have different interests. So even if you are in the Democratic Party, we've got some who are not signing on, not signing on to voting rights, not signing on to the infrastructure bill. And so really the only sort of solution I see there is just, (laughs) you got to vote some folks out because I don't, I don't think they have an interest right now in changing their in their positions or tunes on it. On your website, uh, you have the statistic: DC high school graduation racial gap increased by eighty five percent between two thousand seventeen and two thousand eighteen, and that the high school dropout rates are among the highest in the nation. I'm curious to know why that happened and what policies you are hoping to implement to address that. So I honestly, you know, in looking at that data, it is striking and it is shocking and. We're having lots of conversations around what is going on, particularly with the education system here in D.C. And what we're noticing is that kids are taking less and less of an interest once they get to high school. And so for me, someone who on my day job works in D.C. public schools, I work at a local middle school as a truancy and attendance counselor. So I literally work on this issue directly with families to find out what are some of the obstacles and barriers to your child coming to school on a regular basis and how do we keep them consistent so that they don't become a statistic by next year because ninth grade tends to be the time where we had the highest dropout. And what happens too is there's less of a sense of connection. If you think about school, you know, kindergarten, you're, you know, through fifth grade, you're pretty much monitored one classroom, small classroom. In the middle school setting, you still are kind of cocooned, right? I mean, you move around to different classes, but it's not this big experience. You've got teachers, you've got support systems there that you can rely on. So you still feel a little bit of this buffer, right? High school is like, all right, kids, you're on your own. Find your way to class, get yourself up in the morning, get to school, take care of yourself. You have to, and, and, it, and it, is, it can be a shock emotionally, you know, socially to, to students, to, to, 
now have to take on that level of responsibility. It can feel overwhelming. But also, I don't necessarily believe, and I have seen the you know the data plays out. Not all kids are necessarily interested or uh, want to pursue college per se. They want to be stimulated in in other ways. And so, one of the policies that I am promoting the most is to return vocational and trade training into our high schools, apprenticeship, you know. Um, cosmetology, just skill sets where I feel like there are some students who become intimidated by academia, but they have a gift and they, they, they're hands-on. You know, I, I work with um, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders at the middle school where I'm at. And we took our eighth grade group, I, I chaperoned to a, a high school visit. This has been a few years ago. And I remember one of my more unruly young men, God rest his soul, because he unfortunately became a victim of gun violence at 15 years old. But I remember Dennis, and I remember he was not interested in math, (laughs) reading. You know, he'd go to class, but was he really there? Sometimes, sometimes not. He was just bored, uninterested. We go on this high school tour, and at this particular high school, there was a local gentleman who used to own a shoe repair shop. And he had closed the shop, but he reopened it in the basement of this high school and started offering it as a course elective to teach kids how to resole shoes and, you know, restring and and all of that. And I remember out of all of the things that we walked around and looked at in the classroom that day, that's the one thing that caught Dennis's attention. And Dennis wandered into the shop, sat down, talked to the gentleman, wanted to know about it. And I thought, wow. Now, we can't seem to reach him any other way, but look at this, because kids also need something that they can feel successful at, right? And so when I saw just that little bit of a spark in his eye, I never forgot that. And I said, this is what we need more of. We need more options. We need to recognize that our kids are completely overstimulated. They've got a lot of things going on. So we need to give them options and and other ways that they can feel successful and feel like they have the potential to succeed. And that's when I think we'll see these numbers begin to go down. One of the main tenets of your platform is economic justice. Correct. What does economic justice mean to you? It means leveling the playing field. It means removing the systemic barriers of discrimination, of racism, of exploitation, of means testing uh, that, that, that tend to keep people in poverty, that tend to leave too many people on the outside of being able to sustain themselves, to live not even just above their means, but to even live at their means. There just seems to be such a gap between the haves and the have-nots, and particularly when it comes to people of color. So I want to see the barriers removed. I want to, to everybody to start at the same starting place and be given the same opportunities and not have to worry about having to jump over several hurdles in your lane while someone else has a clear, straight path to what they define as success for themselves. Can you describe further those barriers that you experience in your own life, but lives of friends or family that you've encountered as well? Well, like for instance, um, I can talk about myself, you know, I I haven't always, and I'm still living, you know, in my means, but I I was a single mother at at one point, you know, trying to, to make it with my daughter. And I had to go to the government to get assistance and they would make me have to qualify. You know, you have to lay everything out. Well, you know, what do you need and, and how much do you make and how much are you saving and how much are you paying for this and how much are you paying for that? And if you're paying $2 more than they want you to, oh, I'm sorry, then we're cutting off your entire benefits. You, you know, you're not. And, and, and it's just like, you can't make anybody feel any more smaller than that. <laughs> you know, like all I'm asking for, I'm not asking for this a handout. I'm not asking for this to just be given to me. I'm saying that my life is in a situation right now where I need support and you're making me 
jump through even more hoops just to qualify for minimal support. And then if I go too far beyond what you think I should be doing, then you're going to remove all of that support and put me back at square zero. That to me is, is, is a barrier. It's not okay. It's inhumane. And until we remove those types of barriers where we just take folks at face value and do what we can to help them live, recognizing that, you know, we're all at different places um, in our economic lives. I don't see, you know, how we can achieve full uh, range economic justice. You had mentioned Martin Luther King's speech prior to his assassination Mm -hmm. and the importance that he put on savings, black banking, financial uh, freedom in the black community. Booker T. Washington also said the same with regard to uh, savings, having a bank account, owning your house, and what that means for finding your full potential and acquiring one's full rights. Do you see economic justice as that foundational level by which one can find their full potential to find their freedom? Is it that foundational? It is a a large portion of the foundation. Now, you know, I don't want to put so much stock in a financial foundation that it doesn't necessarily suggest that we also need an emotional and spiritual foundation, I think, to to experience true liberation, right? But because we, we see people with what we think are very stable financial foundations, but they aren't necessarily uh, thriving uh, in, in other areas of their life. But for the way we've set up our system and our society, our capitalist society, uh, universal basic income, for instance, is, uh, Andrew Yang used to say, it's capitalism that doesn't start at zero. So if we want everybody to participate in the system the way we set it up, then we need to give people the means and the opportunity to participate in said system. You can't say this is how you can achieve a level of freedom, of liberation, but we're going to deny you every uh, direction that you try to take in order to do that. You say, get a, a, a home. A home leads to you feeling of having your own place. Yes, but you're appraising the homes of African-American owners way lower than you are of white owners. You know what it's saying? So, so what are you saying then? So who, who, who then is defining the American dream, uh, if you will, and who truly can participate in it if there's all that? It's almost like you can't offer someone unconditional love, but then list several conditions for them to be able to achieve it. So you can't, you cannot offer freedom, but then place 15 qualifications and criteria in place for you to experience that freedom. With regard to economic justice, let's move to Bitcoin. Yeah. Why is Bitcoin a force for economic justice that you don't believe can be found elsewhere? So for me, and I'm still learning about Bitcoin, I'm still learning about crypto. So let's just, you know, I want to be, you know, full disclosure on that. I decided early on in my campaign that I wanted to understand and explore different types of financial tools and opportunities particularly for people of color to have access to. And this was right around the time uh, when uh, Bitcoin was big in the news. You know, there was, you know, about a year ago when all the coins and Doge and all, you know, everybody was talking about crypto, crypto, and I was like, what are they talking about? You know, and one of the members of my team, you know, he had helped me with some digital stuff, but he had also helped Andrew with his uh, digital platform when he was running for president. So that's how we connected. Andrew happened to also be one of one of the only presidential campaigns that accepted cryptocurrency and Bitcoin as a campaign donation. Him and I think it was Eric Swalwell out of the 24 candidates or, or so that were running, they were the only two. So that's where I kind of got introduced to the concept, right? So I'm trying to understand what it is. And my staff member, as I mentioned, that that joined my team, said, you know, Wendy, I think it's time for the political community and the crypto community to start having conversations. They need each other. They don't, they're not mutually exclusive. And as, as Bitcoin in particular, because it seems to be the more prominent coin, it seems to be um, the more accessible coin right now, and, and the one that I see showing up in, in a lot of black and brown spaces, I thought, okay, 
Well, why is this popping up? Because I want to understand so that I can help educate more people. And so when I listened to you know, folks like Lamar Wilson and, and you know some black Bitcoiners talking about the liberation that it provides because it removes the middleman. It takes traditional banks out of the, you know, and so now we don't have to jump through those hoops like I was telling you about earlier in order to qualify for Bitcoin. I can just go buy as many as I like, stack it up, invest it where I want to. And then I started looking worldwide and seeing what was happening in El Salvador and and how um, folks are able to send money, like the Lightning Network, and not have to worry about the fees, remittance fees, and all of that. I'm like, yes, that sounds like freedom. That's what I'm talking about, you know, that you're able to just kind of take control of your own financial destiny and not have to worry about, you know, the middleman on the back end. And so that was what attracted me to to the potential of Bitcoin. And so I, I started digging in more because I said, that sounds like economic justice tool to me. Not it, It's not the tool. It is definitely a tool for me. But I also want to explore, again, all of all of the crypto. We had a conversation. We we were a pro crypto uh, campaign early, you know, first out of the gate. Um, it made sense to me because I was able to I didn't want it to just be I'm jumping on the crypto Bitcoin fad so I can get some quick donations. That was not what my intent was. I was like, if I'm going to embrace this, I need to have to be able to connect it to policy. And so that made sense to me in the economic justice lens. We brought it into the campaign and that's why we have been such strong supporters of it since that time. Because again, it removes that component of, do you qualify for economic justice? Exactly. Right, because we know, you and I know, I, I, I sense that you know that the the undercurrent of do you qualify is are you worthy? Right. And so that's how it can become interpreted. Not only do you not qualify, you don't qualify is because we don't believe you're worthy to achieve this particular level of financial freedom. We need you dependent. You, you are the type of person who uh, we feel like doesn't deserve to have this opportunity to thrive because, you know, we've given you opportunities. I mean, yeah, we threw a few thousand obstacles in your way, but we gave you the same opportunities. You can do the same thing, everyone, and you've chosen not to, and that is not the case. And then I look at what's happening in Nigeria. Nigeria is freaking out because one thing I know about the powerful is they get nervous when the people start gaining power. And 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 the, the banks here and, and, and around the world are like, oh, Ban it! Hurry up! Mm-mm. No, you you can't you can't give people put that you know because that then they're going to think they're more powerful than we are or that they don't need us and that they can go around us and hug. Huh, God forbid you know they have that level of freedom. So that was impressive to see how it's lifting people out of poverty around the world as well. So United States, we're still you know I wish we were more proactive when it comes to innovation and technology and and, and things like Bitcoin. You, you can't, we, we tend to fear what we don't know. And so I wanted to get out ahead of this because I'd like to think that I'm open. I'd like to be forward thinking. I believe the future, Bitcoin is here. It's not coming. It's not a concept. It is here and it is moving like that. And I don't want us to be on the back end trying to catch up with it and, 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 and all that it has to offer because we don't fully understand it. Well, you know what? Get understanding (laughs) that there's plenty of opportunities talking to folks like you, you know, getting out there and learning what's coming. That's why I'm open and I let people know that that's the kind of leader and the type of representative I want to be in Congress. I want to be open. I want to I want to be proactive, not not reactive to this. And so um, it's been a great experience. It's been a great learning experience. Like I said, I'm still learning, but I know I know that I'm on to something here. I know that I'm on to something and I'm just grateful to get and glean, gain all the information that I can. We're grateful that you're here too. What concerns have you received from some of your voters in DC about Bitcoin? It's a scam. It's, what is it again? It's, how does, now how is it going to work? It, it's a Ponzi scheme. Um, you know, one of my, uh, uh, opponents, supporters said, oh, do you think embracing cryptocurrency and embracing Bitcoin is going to help you beat, 
you know, the incumbent. Yeah, good luck with that. Like, why? What? What's what's bothering you about learning more about new innovation, right? So, so that you re- reacting like that says more about you than it does about me. One hundred percent. Don't be upset about me trying to educate myself about where we're going because you want to stay where you are. Right. My incumbent hasn't even entertained the idea of, of, of thinking about cryptocurrency. So but but the biggest barrier, like I said, of course, is is education. Now, when we decided to become a pro crypto campaign, we started looking for, well, where are the the, the Bitcoin groups, the meetups and stuff happening in D.C. so we can go and let people know. And it's just that we couldn't find hardly any. Not like you can find in California and on the West Coast and things like that. You know, there just wasn't yet this appetite for it. But I'm still seeing Bitcoin ATMs popping up in in black communities in the grocery store and in the corner carry out and stuff like that. And and so how are you going to put these things up here and not come in and educate the community so that they can at least know what these are? They start buying Bitcoin thinking and not even talking about the fees that those machines, you know, charge, but that's a whole nother conversation. So I think some of the pushback has been more of folks just need to understand it better. So I've been partnering with a couple of folks, Naja Roberts, the crypto coach out in California, black woman, very powerful. She's going to come in and do some education uh, with the community with me and, you know, just been um, reaching out and just trying to educate myself, like I said, so that I can kind of bring down some of those barriers. I don't get upset when people push back on it or they don't understand it because I get it. I get it. We it can be scary, and but at the same time, we 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 have to be informed. This is the information age. We you know by the time folks get comfortable about talking about it, we'll be on to the next thing. I mean, folks are on their way to web three in the metaverse and you're still trying to block Bitcoin, you know, like Elizabeth Warren, what, what are you really doing? I'm telling you it's all money laundering and setups that I'm like, baby, listen, listen, just go. I, I appreciate that. But you know, each generation has its own wisdom and the wisdom and the experience from which you're operating. If, if you be so humble to admit is a little bit outdated. <laughs> That's the nicest way I can say that. And, <laughs> and the world has changed a lot. And I need you to get on board with where we're going, not where we were. You're an ordained minister. You obtained graduate training in clinical pastoral education. So I'd actually like to get your thoughts on the Christian view of money. Mm-hmm. Do you see a relationship between Jesus's view of money uh, mammon uh, or a corrupt currency, quote unquote, in our current monetary and fiscal policies? I see it from the standpoint of out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And where your heart is, there your treasure will be. And so money for me is a heart issue. So it really isn't the, the tangible tool itself. It's what's in your heart. And what what's in your heart gets demonstrated in where you invest your treasure. Does that make sense? Or what you do with it. Mm-hmm. And so while we can do a lot of things to legislate money and regulate money, it's not going to change someone's heart. We need to get to the deeper issue of why people, particularly our politicians and, and um, systems and corporations are using money to suppress, are using money to harm, are using money to, 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 to like when Jesus came and flipped the, the money changers tables over, he's like, you, y'all in here trying to desecrate a sacred space. Now I'm just going to tell you, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a real pastor, if you will. Like I, I, I I'm not a V thou though, you know, I, I, I'm like, look, Jesus, Here's what we got to do, you know, with this situation. And so I interpret scripture the way I, I would think that Jesus was talking back in the day, right? If it were modern day. Like, you all ain't here trying to take advantage of the people. Y'all trying to make a quick buck. We're trying to, you know, we're trying to change people's hearts and lives. And y'all are making a mockery of it. Get these tables, get your money, and go. You know, and so that's why I'm part of why I'm running is I believe we need a moral renaissance in government. It's not enough to just say, 
uh, money is corrupt and, 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 and they're, they're taking it and using it for bad. For, but where is the motivation to do that coming from? Mm-hmm. We need to, we need to look at and, and, and sort of, um, address both because money doesn't necessarily make someone corrupt. Money shows you more of who you really are. Some people think, well, if I make a lot of money, if I win the lottery or or, or whatever, I'm gonna give it to charity. You know, we're I'm what okay, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. What 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 really happens is the, the more money you have, it gives you an opportunity to demonstrate who, you know, who you really are. In the Bible, sin was referred to as as debt and the debt that Jesus criticized. Should we be viewing debt, and specifically debt that individuals and governments cannot repay, as sinful? Or do you think this harkens back to what you referred to as um, where it's coming from, from the heart? Yeah, because I think sin sin has a more broad definition. Debt, sin is a debt, but sin is also missing the mark. That's another way that sin is described. And so when you miss the mark, you can use money and miss, miss the mark in terms of your, your soul and your spirit. And so... Money can provide a tool for you to be able to miss the mark, which is, you know, to have the heart of God and to serve and to to take care of others and and make sure that. So I I wouldn't necessarily label it as sin, but is it is it an avenue? Is it a a tool and a way for ones to act in a a way that misses the mark and the, the original divine intention? of what you um, have been given to do and is signed to do with that money. Um, because if you look at, at, at the money itself, it, it's not about the amount. It's not about money is simply a tool, but it's also a demonstration of, 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 of character and of, of, of who you truly are. We can, we can learn a lot about the type of person you are looking at where you invest your treasure. It tells me more about your heart. My last question for you, Reverend Wendy, is what gives you hope? The resilience I see in everyday people just out here trying to make it from one day to the next. There's not a day that goes by that someone couldn't look around them, look at their situation, look at their circumstances and say, you know what? I give up. It's never going to turn around. It's never going to get better. Um, I'm always going to be struggling. I'm always going to be living paycheck to paycheck. I'm always going to be stressed. I'm never, I'm always going to be struggling. I'm always going to be surviving, never thriving. But then to see that person have a glimmer of hope come in their eye, if they've been granted a job or they'll come back and they'll say, oh my God, Reverend Whitney, that situation I thought that wasn't going to work out, it actually works, you know? And it's like, see, there is hope. You have to find hope wherever you can and hold on to it. I just had my first grandchild, Miles. You know, he was born during the pandemic back in 2020. I couldn't even go to the hospital with my daughter at the time because they were limiting, you know, who could go in. So she and her fiance were in there and and I was like, you know, pacing outside, like, I can't go in. Why can't I go in, you know? But after he was born and, and just looking at him and deciding that this life, this world is worth saving, it's worth being in, it's worth, because li- he's, he's coming in with a blank slate. He doesn't know, you know, what's going on. He's, you know, looking at us with that sort of unbridled hope, love, joy, like just, you know, What's all the potential that, that, that he could have in his life? And I want to preserve that, you know? So even when I'm not necessarily feeling my most hopeful, one, one look at him and it, and it restores my joy. He repowers my battery. You know, he gives me hope that there is a possibility for life to go on, for situations to turn around. And then looking back over my life as well, uh, Mark, I can just, Think about times where I didn't think me and my daughter were going to make it. We we were homeless for a moment, living in a hotel, and I just did not believe, wasn't sure how things were going to uh, improve at that time. And my daughter, you know, who I love dearly, even in, in those days, said, no, mama, we're going to make it. This, this is just temporary. We're going to be okay. You know, she's 10 years old, 12 years old. You know, it's, it's going to be all right. You know, you're a fighter. I know, you know, and, and she 
would, would cheer me on when I couldn't cheer myself on. So it's moments like that. And I think those moments happen for us um, as opportunities to reflect back on where we've come from, to know that we, we could have given up then and we didn't. Well, congratulations, Grandma. <laughs> Thank you. I go by I go by Gigi, though. I said, Grandma sounds a little too old and I'm a little too young and fly for that. So we're going to call me uh, Gigi. <laughs> I like that. We've got a Gigi in my family, too. Okay. You are an incredible hope dealer. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Please tell our listeners where you can find where they can find you and how they can support your campaign. Please check me out at RevWendyForCongress.com. That is my website. And you can find out all the wonderful information about our platform and where we've been and what we've been doing. You can follow me on all social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram at RevWendyForCongress and Twitter at RevWendy3. And they even got me dancing on TikTok, Mark. So you can find me on <laughs> on TikTok at Rev Wendy for Congress. All of those platforms you are also able to donate on. I am proud to say that you can donate in crypto, in Bitcoin. You can donate on the Lightning Network um, as well as BitPay. So we take fiat and we take Bitcoin. <laughs> so please uh, feel free to donate and give to, to our campaign. But I really just appreciate you, Mark, for giving me this opportunity to speak to your audience, to have this chat with you. It's been wonderful. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine, Reverend Wendy. Thank you. 